Welcome to the first edition of Medicine of Tomorrow, a podcast where we explore the challenges and solutions in today's healthcare system. I'm your host, Elijah Renner, and today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Daniel Renner, a graduate of the University of Colorado School of Medicine, who offers a unique perspective on rural healthcare networks. We discuss technology integration, the recruitment of healthcare professionals in rural communities, community engagement, tackling disparities, and providing comprehensive care for complex health needs. Thank you, Dr. Renner, for being our first guest and sharing your expertise. If you do enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or kindly share it with a friend to help us reach more listeners. Please enjoy. Hey, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to me about this. This is interesting. I'm glad you're, glad you're looking into it. Yeah, awesome. So I want to ask some questions and um, have the viewers be more familiar with what you do in rural medicine and your role in your county and what you're doing to improve the healthcare system overall. Sure, sure, yeah. So my background is, uh, my name is Dan Renner. I'm an ER doctor, uh, graduated from the University of Colorado um, in 2010 with my MD. Um, grew up in Vermont, so grew up in a really rural area, small town called Topsom. And um, uh, in medical school, I actually was part of the rural track. I was the second uh, the second class uh, in the rural track in the University of Colorado that obviously uh, uh, specializes or uh, attempts to train uh, young doctors to be rural doctors by exposing them to a lot of rural medicine around the state of Colorado. Uh, so I graduated the rural track, but um, an interesting thing about rural medicine, uh, once you go to residency, it's harder to find residencies in rural areas. So I went to emergency medicine residency in North Carolina um, at uh, Chapel Hill, had a great experience there and then worked for a year in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is anything but rural, for sure. Um, then I got a job back in Colorado and worked in Colorado Springs, uh, again, a very urban area, um, at, a, at a tertiary care center for uh, six or seven years. Um, and then in 2020, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I actually came out to Pagosa Springs, Colorado, which certainly is rural. Um, now I'm working at a, as an emergency doctor uh, in a critical access hospital a very small single coverage emergency department, um, and uh, that's where I'm at now. Uh, right now, I'm actually the medical director of the, the EMS services here as well, the ambulance service. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'm actually a part of the rural training program. So I'm actually getting University of Colorado students once in a while to train with me in Pagosa Springs. So it's pretty pretty awesome. So it's nice to be able to give back and complete the complete the circle, so to speak. Yeah, awesome. Um, it's definitely challenging being rural. Um, you know, the, you're limited in a lot of your resources. So um, what unique challenges and opportunities do you see in providing healthcare services to rural communities? And how do you anticipate them changing in the future? Yeah, well, the main thing, the main difference in the rural communities is that we just don't have access to specialists. Um, so that's the big thing, and access to really expensive studies and sometimes expensive treatments as well, um, because rural medicine, you know, we don't have the volumes to really uh, to to really make those specialists and make those expensive medicines and treatments pay for themselves in tiny areas like this. Typically, when uh, somebody from Pagosa Springs, a rural area, uh, gets gets a more rare disease or a complex disease. They actually have to seek medical care at a tertiary care center in a big city uh, because we don't have the services. So that's the that's the main thing. Um, and then, uh, geez, I could go on and on. Another thing, obviously, is that uh, rural folks 
uh, sometimes can have a little bit more difficulty getting to appointments and getting to the hospital. Um, so if you live 20 miles away on a rural ranch, you know, where taxi cabs don't run and, uh, and you don't have a reliable method of transportation, sometimes it's hard to make appointments, whether that be for just routine follow-up or even scheduled appointments. If you've got a growth on your neck that you got to see the ear, nose, and throat doctor for, sometimes it's actually hard to make your appointment. So that's difficult too. And then lastly, uh, money as well. Uh, rural, rural hospitals uh, are, are struggling to, to kind of stay afloat um, because uh, yeah, the payment is a little bit uh, more complex. We'll probably talk more about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's tougher for rural medicine, or excuse me, rural hospitals to kind of stay, stay open essentially uh, because of money issues and payment issues and, uh, and really struggling. Uh, and not really being, being big money makers. Very often they're subsidized by taxes and community donations and everything like ours is. So, uh, so I'd say those are the three, um, probably the three, uh, three main, main things I would say about uh, rural medicine, some challenges there. Yeah, that makes definitely a lot of sense. Um, what about technology? Does technology ever help assist, um, you know, shortening the distance between maybe a patient and their provider do like telemedicine stuff like that yeah so that's a great point so telemedicine can have a lot of great uh implications or a, a great uh, applications excuse me in rural areas for sure um obviously it makes a lot of sense if you need to see a specialist then you don't have to drive you know five hours to a big city to see a specialist you can just zoom them or facebook or whatever you know uh, get uh get on some video chat with them and uh and be assessed and that way that eliminates a lot of problems you know the transportation and the availability locally for sure um uh, and in a lot of cases that's really great especially for things like for instance psychiatry telemedicine can be fantastic because you're just talking to somebody and the physical exam is not necessarily uh needed however uh there are two issues that i see with telemedicine um the first issue is uh, if somebody has a medical problem, it's really hard to assess them and perform a physical exam. Um, so very often, uh, as a doctor, not only do I talk to somebody and get the history from them, but I also have to examine them and I have to feel their abdomen. I have to look very closely at their throat. I have to feel the texture of their skin. Um, I have to, you know, use use uh, different tactile uh, uh, parts of the physical exam. Sometimes even smell can can uh, can assist in making a diagnosis. And unfortunately, obviously, those things aren't. We can't do those over telemedicine. Now, a lot of diagnoses you don't need a, a, a very thorough, a very detailed physical exam. So a lot of diagnoses actually can be made over telemedicine. Um, but, uh, but unfortunately some can't, uh, so, so that's one limitation. So depending on the disease process, depending on the medical problems, that's, that's one. The other limitation is, let's just say that, uh, everyone rural in, in this small town starts making telemedicine appointments with doctors from tertiary care centers in big cities, then all of a sudden where, who's getting paid, right? So all the money is now going to the big cities. And that is just going to um, lead to less money in this community to fund the hospital and doctors. And, and it's just a vicious cycle where then, you know, you're going to have to hire more telemedicine and then that more money is going to go outward. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be tricky to, to kind of sustain actual physical doctors in a physical uh, care center and hospital here. So uh, so that is another problem uh, with 
um, would tell us that as well. But that being said, you know, man, for some things, uh, psychiatry, sometimes dermatology, um, and obviously managing some problems, like for instance, high blood pressure and, and lab diagnoses as well. Things where just labs are wrong. If the sodium is too low, if the, um, if the uh, sugar is too high, if the blood pressure is too high, if the calcium is too high, things like that oftentimes can be managed uh, through telemedicine. So, um, so there are pluses and minuses for sure. Yeah, I think um, sort of the widespread integration of something like telemedicine is definitely difficult in terms of execution, because if you get it wrong, um, it can definitely lead to, like you said, uh, people not getting paid and people in the wrong place. Yeah, um, yeah and speaking of people getting paid, um, is there issues in rural medicine and rural healthcare where people struggle to find qualified individuals who want to work in rural healthcare? Yeah, great question, and absolutely yes, uh, unfortunately. And it's funny because there are some people, like myself, who just dream of living in a rural area like this, surrounded by mountains, surrounded by cattle, you know, and, and having that small-time feel, and we love it. And that was kind of our idea, uh, that, that that's the life we wanted to live. And, uh, and so sometimes uh, people are actually gravitate, they gravitate to, to rural areas. Unfortunately, it's hard. It's hard to get people who are kind of on the fence uh, to, to come out to rural areas for a lot of reasons. Um, geez, and I could go on and on. Number one, um, lack of access to specialists. So sometimes uh, being a doctor where you can just call up a, a subspecialist who's right down the road and be like, hey, can you see my patient real quick? Um, that's really convenient and not having those specialists for backup can be challenging. For instance, as, the, as an ER doctor here, I don't have any obstetricians in my hospital. So if somebody comes in with labor and, you know, geez, God forbid, a complex labor, like a, like a, a breach presentation or something that's very complex and requires a C-section, I don't have that. I, I can't do a C-section in the ER and, uh, and I don't have anyone in my hospital can do it. So I have to stabilize as best I can and try to get them to the hospital one hour down the road by ambulance to, to get emergency surgery. And sometimes that's, well, it's obviously always very stressful, but sometimes uh, that's, uh, sometimes it just doesn't work out quite frankly. And sometimes patients have bad outcomes because we just don't have the services they need. And I try to get the person down for a C-section within one hour, but sometimes bad things can happen. And that's one of the downsides in living in rural medicine. And so to answer your question, some doctors don't really like working in an environment like that, and I can't blame them one bit. Um, uh, you know, have, having a little bit of stress and not having access to, to backup all the time. Money is usually an issue, and very often uh, working in rural areas, the money can be a lot tighter uh, and the pay can be lower. Um, and then uh, another thing, geez, uh, you know, I may want to live in the mountains surrounded by, you know, cattle and stuff. But, uh, but my wife, who I, who I meet and marry, maybe uh, she just really likes being close to a lot of fancy restaurants that we don't have in town. So family, you know, how, how happy the family is in the area can be, uh, can be a big deterrent for some people to find, uh, to find jobs here. Um, again, there, there are lots of other, uh, lots of other uh, considerations as well. Those are some of the big ones. And there are some studies that, uh, that have been done about uh, recruiting or retaining rural physicians, but I'd say in my personal experience, the pay, the, the job, not having backup, and then the family are probably the biggest ones. But yes, it definitely is an issue. 
Yeah, and uh, one of the things you talked about was limited resources. Obviously, if you can't perform an operation, you definitely need those professionals. And um, I wonder if there's a lot of people coming into a hospital, even in a rural area, and you just don't have the resources to care for all of them. Maybe it's at once or it's over a month. You have many different needs um, popping up and appearing. How do you allocate resources to make sure that you're able to give comprehensive care? Yeah. That's, uh, that's an extremely difficult question. Um, the short answer is we do what we can for everybody, right? right. If somebody needs something, we try to figure out a way to get it. Um, uh, unfortunately, as, as easy as it would be to just say we want to be able to give everyone everything they need, we just can't, right? We, we just literally can't pay for things. Um, for instance, if somebody has a very rare disease uh, and they have an emergency medicine that they need for their rare disease, uh, and sometimes they have an outbreak of their rare disease once per year, and they want us to carry a medicine to the hospital that costs $100,000 in case they need it, and the hospital pays for that, it's, it's very difficult to justify a huge cost for something that we barely ever use, if, if we would ever use it. And it, the, the more... Um, the more available we make all those you know, resources, the harder it is to sustain it uh, uh, monetarily. And, and unfortunately, I, I wish medicine were free. I met, wish that you know, things didn't cost money, but they do. And uh, for instance, you know, if, if, we, if a neurologist were trying to hire a neurologist for our, our rural hospital, and the neurologist says, well, I'm going you know, to need a million dollars a year to, to work down there, I mean, sometimes the community just literally can't afford that service. So it's, it's very difficult. Um, uh, and it leads to a lot of ethics concerns. It, it leads or questions that leads to a lot of financial questions and economics. And, you know, we just look at the money that we have and we do what we can with it. And we try to help the most amount of people the way we can. But, you know, but we can always refer people out. We say, hey, you've got a super rare disease that, quite frankly, our hospital can't handle. But we can hook you up to Denver, right? And if somebody says, hey, I'm not willing to go to Denver, I want to be treated here, then we say, oh, we, we can't reasonably, uh, in reality, you know, fulfill that request. We're sorry. This is what we can do for you. Um, so, so it can be really tough sometimes how to allocate resources when, quite frankly, we just, we don't, just don't have infinite money and infinite resources and infinite personnel available. Yeah, that, that sounds very difficult. Um, so you talked about sending people to other hospitals in the regions. Um, do you ever outsource um, telemedicine specifically to help people connect with specialists? Yeah, so once in a while we do. Uh, our hospital right now, we actually use telemedicine for behavioral health and psychiatry. Um, so because, like I mentioned earlier, it's a really great way to utilize telemedicine because you can get a really good interview and build rapport with, uh, with folks uh, with the technology nowadays, you know, um, and you don't really need a strong physical exam aspect. Uh, interestingly, um, we also use telemedicine uh, for neurology. When people come in with acute strokes, we, uh, we often use telemedicine to have a neurologist evaluate somebody. Very often a neurologic exam can be performed. Uh, pretty well over telemedicine. You know, you can ask people to, to move and to smile and to test a lot of their motor function and their cognitive function. Obviously, you can't test sensation and things like that, but, um, but you know, that's what you ask the ER doctor to do in the ER. You know, hey, what was their sensory exam? You know, and then I can kind of fill the neurologist in. 
but those are the two main ways that we use telemedicine in the, in the ER anyway. Um, and then usually other appointments, things, for instance, cardiology, ear, nose, and throat, uh, obstetrics, things like that. Typically, we actually do have the patient um, go to the specialist and we don't use tele telemedicine for that. Yeah, maybe that will change in the future, but as of now, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I kind of want to shift gears to something pretty different here. Um, do you guys recruit volunteers or um, have some sort of community engagement program that maybe helps to support or offset some of the financial constraints that you might have? Well, we certainly do fundraising and we certainly have a strong community presence. Honestly, that's one of my favorite things about working in this hospital in this rural area. I really do feel like it is a community hospital right now. We're not owned by any corporations right now. Um, and uh, all the, the leadership and all the, the finances and everything is just based in this community, in this county, essentially. And, uh, and it's really good for a lot of reasons. You know, we, we all feel very tied to the hospital. We all um, feel uh, very attached to its success or failure. And, and for, you know, that can really help uh, a hospital succeed and also help hospital focus in on exactly what their community needs, you know. Um, folks from big cities might not quite understand uh, what our communities need as well as we do, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we are heavily involved with the community. We do do a lot of outreach, especially through EMS and things, you know. We just had a cool event where we, you know, taught uh, a, a bunch of middle schoolers how the 911 system works and everything. We had a helicopter come in and the fire department come in and it was pretty cool. And that kind of thing is, is a lot of fun in our community. Um, there are fundraising efforts, obviously, uh, you know, we have dinners and, uh, and a lot of the, 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 the more wealthy people in the community oftentimes give back uh, to the hospital, make donations and, uh, you know, get their name on the wall and everything. And that helps a lot. For instance, we just got a new uh, mammogram uh, machine and, and the procedure. Uh, we, we have access to those procedures now because of community donations. So, uh, so you know, having a really tight knit community that's tied to the success of the hospital really can uh, lead to increased donations and everything. We do uh, get a little bit of money from mill levies from taxes and things like that too. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so definitely, you know, being involved with the community definitely helps. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we talked a little bit over email about um, sort of a nationwide decline in rural hospitals and how many are actually at risk of closing. Do you fear um, some implications of that becoming that trend continuing? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, um, yeah, it's it's tough because just like you said, it is a trend. It is a trend that a lot of rural hospitals are closing now. And um, man, yeah, I won't lie to you. I, I so I'm I'm not way high up in the administrative levels of medicine, but what I see is I see that. Uh, corporate medicine is really taking over. Uh, medicine is really becoming a for-profit thing, um, and, uh, and corporations are coming in and they're buying up hospitals, and they're trying to increase economies of scale. Uh, you know, these big um, conglomerations of multiple hospitals and hospital systems are, uh, you know, they can save a lot of money very often because they can, you know, have their specialists in one location and they can have this big network, this watershed network, where they funnel everything to their big tertiary care centers for their specialists. And, uh, and obviously, you know, having a big, uh, uh, big corporation with lots of hospitals has a lot more bargaining power with insurance companies and so forth like that. Uh, but unfortunately, because of these big economies of scale, um, these 
these large hospital networks are trying to save money and, and make money and pinch pennies. And, um, and very often they look at rural hospitals that aren't making any money, that are actually costing them money. And sometimes uh, the decision is made to help keep the rural hospital open and subsidize it and put money into that because it's the right thing to do, because, you know, whatever. Um, but sometimes the decision is made, hey, this, this rural hospital is really dragging us down. This rural hospital is losing money. We're paying too much doctor, the doctors too much. And quite frankly, we think that it's a, a smart economic decision to close down right, the hospital. Just shut it just down. Ask everyone from that community, yeah, ask everyone from that community just to drive farther to the bigger hospital that's two hours away, you know? And sometimes that decision is made. Um, and, uh, and I get it. I understand why it's hard to keep something open that's literally costing you money and you're not really getting much in return. But at the same time, when it comes to healthcare, you know, is it a cost? Is it a privilege? Is it a right? Is it a commodity? You know, that's yeah. that's what we kind of have to decide, and that's a bigger question, right? So, uh, but yeah, I am seeing um, a lot of rural hospitals closing down for sure, and a lot of us are at risk because, uh, like you alluded to, it, it's it's harder to keep them open. Yeah. Um. Is there like methods that you're looking at to make sure that? equitable access to healthcare in rural communities can continue even though we see hospitals closing? Yeah. Well, um, I can't speak for all rural hospitals, but I can speak for my own a little bit. Again, I'm not high up in the administration, but what we try to do is we try to uh, play by the rules. We try not to make mistakes. We try to be, uh, to give really good care so that people still trust us and want to come to us. We essentially try to keep business going by, by doing a good job and, uh, um, uh, and, and providing good care to folks. Um, we, uh, and, you know, obviously trying to uh, negotiate with payers, with insurance companies, trying to get fair rates so that we're not being taken advantage of and, and forced to give out care for free, which we do a lot of. Um, we give a lot of charity care to people that can't afford it, and that's wonderful for the community, but unfortunately, in the long run, if it makes our hospital bankrupt, then you know, there might be no care in the future if the hospital has to close. Say that again? So if the hospital has to close because they're losing so much money giving out charitable care, then it's... Exactly. Then, then you've shot yourself in the foot, It's right? a lose-lose. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a tough question. Uh, what are we doing? We, we constantly try to make ourselves... Um, we, we try to always let the community know that we are there for them, that we are a partnership, that, but sometimes we need their help through donations, through, uh, you know, all these things If people decide, oh, I don't really trust our rural hospital for my, for my elective surgery. I need to get my gallbladder out. I don't want to come to our rural hospital. I want to go to a hospital in Denver because they might do a better job, which, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, yeah. Um, but if that kind of thing keeps happening, then our hospital might, you know, starve to death, essentially. Right. So keeping the community involved and doing good care so that our community trusts us and the hospital does get good business, that, that can help, too. Not to mention the donations and the support with taxes and things like that. If the, the community decides, hey, we don't like our hospital, we don't like paying a, a, an extra little mill levy on it or whatever, and we decide to vote that down in the next election, then all of a sudden, our, our funding can dry up and we're really in trouble and we might have to really close down, right? So, yeah. Yeah, are there any um, strategies that you guys presently use to try to get people to take care of their own health and uh, make sure that they're, you know, being more uh, medically responsible about their eating decisions or et cetera? 
Wow, that's hard. And I would say that's uh, that's kind of on an individual basis in terms of the primary doctors are constantly doing that. You know, we encourage people to, to come to primary care, to, to be seen, to have their blood pressure measured, to check, make sure they, they're not developing diabetes, have their cholesterol looked at, you know, have screening exams and things to make sure that they're not developing treatable diseases that might lead to problems in the future. In terms of taking care of your own health, encouraging exercise and encouraging well-being, of course, we counsel people. We counsel them to, you know, not smoke, not use drugs. Right. You know? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes all the counseling in the world doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but we're always there trying to give them uh, good advice and to make good decisions. Uh, you know, you can't force anybody, especially in a rural area. These, these ranchers and farmers will do, you know, will do whatever they want. Um, so, uh, honestly, building rapport and, and gaining trust of, of your patients is step number one, and then you can kind of try to nudge them towards healthier lifestyles if they're if they're willing to, to hear it. And sometimes they're not, and, you know, that's okay, but we'll still take care of them the best we can, you know? Right, definitely. Um, so, I've looked at some statistics. I think I shared one with you about the increasing prevalence of chronic diseases, specifically in rural communities, um, and how that, those compared to, you know, metropolitan, um, semi-metropolitan areas, um, it's definitely higher. Do you think that's um, more just because people maybe are unwilling to, you know, uh, be more cautious about their own health, or do you think it has to do with something else? That's a great question. Um, The short answer is I don't know for sure, and I'm not sure if anyone knows absolutely for sure, but there's definitely a few guesses here. I mean, first guess is rural communities, very often people are, uh, uh, they don't have access to uh, the healthier diets and the healthier foods and not to mention the money, you know, eating healthy is expensive. And sometimes rural communities, you know, or rural folks uh, don't have the money to spend on uh, as many fresh fresh vegetables and things like that. And uh, so sometimes the diet, unfortunately, is not as good. Um, I don't know any statistics about whether smoking and, and things like that are more prevalent in rural communities. I'm not sure, um, but uh, but definitely access to care, like you talked about. Um, uh, you know, uh, geez, sometimes, especially if we have a primary care shortage, which we do sometimes, and somebody makes an appointment with a doctor and says, "Hey, I'm having some chest pain, or I don't feel good. My legs are swelling up. Maybe I'm in heart failure." And they say, "Oh, sure, your primary doctor can see you in three months." But the patient might just be like, "Oh, you know what? That's all right." No worries. I'll just I'll just forget about it, and they let things go, you know. Um, so that's uh, that's definitely a factor. Uh, geez, sometimes with with respiratory problems, COPD and such. Sometimes like living way far out, living far away, and not having access to twenty four hour pharmacies. Sometimes getting prescriptions can be an issue as well, which can lead to progression of disease and worsening of disease. Those are a few guesses, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, those are some guesses. <laughs> yeah, do you, you think um, definitely having to do with uh, less physicians and less primary care people available because of the um, maybe the lack of people that can be employed, do you think that maybe has contributed to it? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I mean, lack of access to primary care is huge, huge, and it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Even when you have great insurance, uh, I mean, you ask when the next primary care appointment is, and it's like months and months from now, you know, and it's like, well, I'm, my legs are swelling up now, you know, I'm having a hard time breathing now, I'm having chest pain now, so then you have to make decisions, do you wait, do you go somewhere else, far out of town, which we talked about, or um, do you, uh, uh, do you go to the ER, right, and then you put more stress on the ER, and we're happy to see people, and we're happy to put out fires for sure, but 
at the same time is that the appropriate use of resources as well, uh, sending people to the ER um, for, for things that should be managed in primary care. So that's, yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough question for sure. Yeah, and that, that must be really difficult, especially coming from your position as an ER doctor, seeing people come in who maybe had problems escalate that could have been solved right there in their primary care. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's super frustrating. And I look at look at somebody and be like, you've been losing weight for three months. Like, and now I've got to tell you, you've got cancer all over your body. If you came in like, you know, two months ago, then maybe we could have had a chance to stop this, you know? Yeah. Oh, I tried to get an appointment, but I couldn't get an appointment for three months. And, you know, I just kept on putting it off and I couldn't get a ride. It's, so yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes for sure. I mean, I honestly, a, a part of me loves taking care of people like that. Who I know um, don't have any other outlet. They don't have any other avenue and they've tried, you know, doing it the right way. Um, and they end up in my ER. It, it's hard for me to be upset with that, you know, because I, I'm glad that at least they came to see me. Um, but, but yeah, it is, it definitely is frustrating to see people's health suffer because of the lack of access to care and, and not only lack of access, even if they can see the primary doctor, you ask the primary doctors around here who are booked out for, for months, right? And you say, how many cancellations did you have yesterday? They're like, well, I had, you know, I had four or five appointments. The people just didn't show up. And then you talk to them later and the people are like, oh yeah, I got busy. Or, oh yeah, my... I hope you found Dr. Renner's insights as valuable as I did. Our conversation to me highlighted several key points, including the demand for dedicated professionals willing to work in rural medicine, even if it means accepting lower pay, and the potential for technology to improve access to some, but not all, medical services, as well as the crucial role of community engagement and generosity in sustaining rural healthcare networks despite the economic challenges they often face. If you could take a moment to leave a review, I'd greatly appreciate it, Until next time, I look forward to seeing you in our upcoming episode. Bye.